Support for this podcast comes from Smartwater. Want to get a little more from every sip? Smartwater Alkaline doesn't just taste crisp and pure. It's loaded with everything you need to perform at your best, whether you're running marathons or boardroom meetings. Elevate how you hydrate and pick up a Smartwater Alkaline today. To learn more, visit drinksmartwater.com. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hey, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. I'm here with Evan Ratliff and Max Linsky. Hey, you guys. We're all here in this room. Indeed, we are. Uh, we have a good show for you this week. I Who's ta- that? I talked to, uh, con- continuing on my foreign correspondent beat. <laughs> I know you have uh, I know you have those foreign correspondent fantasies. I, I do have those four. I, uh, frequent, frequently, Max actually will catch me, uh, will come over and think I'm doing work, and I just have like a uh, airline site. I'm just sort of like fantasy looking up tickets. I've been called out for it this week at least once. <laughs> the actual correspondent part or just the travel? It's, I only, just the foreign? It's not even, I don't even actually do it. It's just the, I like to like fantasize about buying plane tickets. Um, Alex Perry, who's on the show this week, is a veteran correspondent. Uh, he's been writing for Newsweek about Africa over the last couple years. He's done several pieces that were both big pieces of Newsweek and came out as Kindle singles. They're really in-depth, broad, big reporting uh, about important issues, and he's a fascinating person to talk to you about how you do stories like that. All right. What about sponsors? Oh, we've got one, one that is near and dear to our hearts. It's uh, MailChimp. Mm-hmm. MailChimp is the best way to send email. If you have a business and you're sending emails or you're thinking about sending emails, you should try MailChimp. Eight been, million I, other businesses use MailChimp. I've been thinking about sending some emails. <laughs> yeah. from, from foreign from, locations? Yes. Yeah. Actually, I won't travels. actually be there. It's just, I'm just going to use a VPN to impersonate <laughs> someone sending emails from strange locations with MailChimp. We're also starting a spinoff show that's just about Aaron's fantasy lives. Yeah, it's okay. Here's what, how it works. You guys call me, and I'm, I'm uh, on the scene... Except I'm actually at my desk, but it has like sound effects. And right stuff now too. I'm in Morocco. <laughs> I'm in my hotel room watching Netflix. So now here's Aaron, uh, fantasy correspondent <laughs> with Alex Perry, actual foreign correspondent. Welcome, Alex Perry. Thank you for having me. Uh, actually, uh, this sometimes I say this to people uh, as a uh, performance when they come on, and, and with you, it's a genuine question. So I, w- uh, what brings you to sound? <laughs> um, uh, a new book. New book. Yeah. Uh, and this is Third The book. Rift? Yeah. Yeah. So, which is putting together kind of uh, seven or eight years of living and reporting in Africa and positioning Africa at a sort of pivotal moment where it reclaims its freedom from the world and, and, and pushes back at anybody still pushing it around. It builds pretty heavily on the reporting you've been doing for Newsweek for the last few years. How long have you been in Newsweek? So Newsweek was just a, a, a year. That was a year oh, contract. Just, yeah, that was, was an ambitious year. My contract was for 10,000 10, worders. Yeah. Could go longer. Yeah. And some did. Um, and I got to eight. Actually, I, I, I was going to make it, which surprised me. I really was sprinting all year. but um, And then at eight, uh, Newsweek US closed Newsweek UK, and that was that. We were all fired. 
Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> the website's yeah. There's gone. no hard finnies there at all. Okay. <laughs> so, well, let's talk about what the conception of that project was uh, before it uh, ended in flames. <laughs> um, was was the conception of the project that, uh, that these African stories um, were too complex to take on at, at the 2,000 word length? I mean, I'm thinking of the piece you did on uh, Boko Haram. Right. Where... There's one thread, which is Boko Haram's uh, role in the uh, global jihad world. And then there's a lot about the history of Nigeria and corruption and oil money that mysteriously is no longer in bank accounts. And then there's also stuff in the town, Metagurie. I was thinking when I was rereading it, if I had to cut some of these (laughs) threads, I don't know which threads you would cut to do the 2000 words version of it. That story ran at almost full length in the magazine. Oh, really? Yeah. That's like, um, that's like a whole Newsweek. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, Newsweek UK was this sort of fairly radically experimental thing for the short time that it existed. I mean, they ran... Until you ran it into the ground. <laughs> <laughs> they, they ran a 20,000 word piece on yeah. uh, an American guy who'd been living with pygmies in Central Africa studying their music. You know, they ran a profile of... Vladimir Putin that was fiction. They asked a guy who knew him well and had studied him for years to imagine a day in the life of Vladimir Putin, but it it was a piece of fiction. I mean, it's a great profile as well. Um, But it was, you know, it was was quite daring. Um, You know, in response to your question of, of, you know, why the length for these African stories, it wasn't just African stories. I I did other ones as well. I did a Tony Blair profile. I did some stuff on the European migration crisis. It was it was simply that that kind of stuff actually just doesn't exist in the UK. Yeah, and Newsweek UK wanted to be different. You know, wanted to wanted to kind of restore journalism. Journalism in the UK is in a horrible place. I mean, I know that from a journalistic perspective, it's hard to get someone to pay you uh, to do this kind of work in the y- UK. Yeah. But does the lack of familiarity with the format translate to to the readership also? No, I think the readership. Uh, seem to accept it fairly readily. It's, I mean, you know, the whole point of, well, and certainly the, the the sort of narrative journalism I was doing was one of the main points was to make it more accessible, actually. You know, condensing all that stuff into 2,000 words or less makes it almost indigestible, I thought. Yeah. You know, and, and, and building it much more as a as a narrative, as a, as, a, as a real story, a tale, you know, makes it actually easier. Yeah, you're asking for quite a lot of someone's time, but... Um, you know, I think it's it's a lot of it's a lot of easier experience, but um, you know, in terms of, of of the industry, they're completely unused to that form. And um, I mean, there's two types of stories in the UK. There's a news story, which is an inverted pyramid. You put all your most important facts at the top uh, in the most sensational order you can imagine, and then you know, taper down so that the sub editor can come in and cut from the bottom. And then there's a feature story, which doesn't begin. Uh, 28 people died in a bus crash. There's a feature story begins, it was a dark and storm and night, and then the second line is 28 people died in a bus crash. You know, that, right. Those are the two things of, of, of British journalism, basically. And, you know, so that, so that narrative journalism is, is an American form. I get into all sorts of trouble over in the UK because um, when I tell them that American journalism is superior, it is. And British people get very snobby about that because, you know, after all, it's our language. We should be the best at it. They're not, and 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 a, a lot of that isn't because the journalists themselves are just 
shoddy. It's it's a story of resources. They're just not there. Going rate right in London these days, you're doing well to get 50p a word. And a lot of people, if you're writing a longer story, it's in it's 21p a word, 25p a word. You know, and what is that? 40 cents? <laughs> I, was, I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> Uh, okay, well, that let, let's uh, let's rewind from that point. Right. So, how does someone uh, coming from that system end up doing what you do? Um, what was your? You've been a bureau chief all over the world. How did you? How did you get your first uh, foreign gig? Uh, first foreign gig. So yeah, I, w- I worked up through the British Regional Press. First job, Great Yarmouth Mercury, staff of two on a, on the sort of zit on England's ass. I mean, the British seaside is 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 quite. Uh, a depressing place you know the, the sea is brown it used to be where everyone went on holiday but they haven't you know since cheap flights or flights at all I think they haven't done that so you know <laughs> so since the invention of the airplane no one's enjoyed vacationing in Britain anymore <laughs> the last big thing that happened in Great Yarmouth was when the Stones played in 1964 and people still remember that yeah okay but, so you were living in Yarmouth as yeah. a young man yeah. that doesn't sound fun oh look they pay, <laughs> they pay me so little I was £7,000 a year which is just slightly over $10,000 they pay me so little I couldn't afford to leave wow. Great Yarmouth I was going to say <laughs> You're, you're not an old man, so... <laughs> no, it was too, is, but I was there for two and a half years. This is uh, the 90s, early 2000s? Early 90s. Yeah, early early 90s, 90s, yeah. okay. Yeah. I had my own column, though. Okay, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and actually, it taught me a lot. I mean, you had to... You had to be able to talk to anyone, and Great Yarmouth, uh, the holiday industry had died, so it was filled with people on welfare. I'm literally picturing like an abandoned yeah. uh, Ferris wheel yes. at the seaside. Yes. Is that, and, is that and, right? And two piers rotting. Yeah. 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 And, um, and you could win a holiday there in the sun for um, $15 for the entire weekend, including food. You know <laughs> what? What kind of uh, news does uh, does a place like Yarmouth generate? Fair bit of murder. You can huh? count on a few of those a year. Um, a lot of rape, uh, drugs, uh, you know, social decay, all that kind of stuff. And 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 I mean, what British local papers are mainly interested in is violent death of any sort. Any unnatural uh, departure is fantastic. And um, and you have to do this thing called the death knock when there's been a car accident. You the the police will tell you. Um, the the name and address of whoever's died and you go around to the family's house and knock on their door and say, hello, it's the Yarmouth Mercury. Can I come in and talk to you about your son? What kind of reactions do you get to that? Well, half of the people come at you with an axe. And, uh, and, uh, but amazingly, half of them almost expecting you to come. And, uh, it's, you know, I had to do three of those in a week once. And I, to be honest, I mean, I've done... You know, more than two dozen wars. I've I've never done anything more traumatic than that. It's just it's just and just one after another. We're looking for horror, really horror and um and and grief and you know and and we're looking for a picture, and uh, generally the one on the mantelpiece. And I mean that was just always almost the worst bit because you would ask for the best picture of this person, and I just knew that the in the production process that picture was going to get lost. <laughs> The whole thing was horrible, and I had this news editor who would who would ask, you know, sometimes on a mobile phone when you're in the room, if it had been a girl that had died, you know, his exact words would be, "Would you kick her out of bed?" <laughs> it, was, pe- it was traumatizing on so many levels, but in a way, 
it was um, you know I kind of felt like after that you could do any, you could do with anything really. I was going to say a lot of people on this show um, insult former bosses and then regret <laughs> it, but I'm feeling like you're gonna you're probably gonna live. Actually, with I heard a couple of weeks ago that my former boss is uh, he's he's yeah he, he's left us. Oh okay, yeah. <laughs> Fair play. Uh, so I assume that for um, reasons both journalistic and personal, you were eager to move on. Um, yes. Did you did you have your sights set on leaving uh, leaving the UK or just leaving Yarmouth? I think yeah, no, definitely wanted to leave the UK, but it was a few years before I did. I did a lot of uh, crappy jobs after that. Um, we had a thing called teletext. Do you know what teletext? It was like an early version of the internet where you uh, you put text on TV. She so had to fit an entire story on nine lines that would fit on TV, and there was no justification. She had to get the words exactly right, otherwise they'd fall off the end. And people would <laughs> read it at home yeah. on their TVs? Yeah. Wow. Well, yes and no. I got the night shift. You know, I yeah. got all the great jobs. And uh, I once changed a story and sent a message to my friend, who was a late-night DJ, um, at three in the morning, saying, Hello, Phil, and I made it do rainbows up and down. And I got no complaints, so maybe nobody was watching at all. <laughs> but finally, yes, uh, I got a job with uh, uh, Agence France Press, the French news agency, um, age 27. And it was a big year in the UK. Um, Diana died. Um, Tony Blair was elected. The Spice Northern, Girls were huge. Right. Northern Ireland peace process was getting underway. There was a lot to do. And brilliantly a volcano blew up in Montserrat in the Caribbean and they sent me there because that was a sort of old British territory I mean that was just amazing you know yeah I was kind of on my way so I did did two or three years there and then moved to Hong Kong with AFP then joined Time Magazine with with good timing uh, just a few months before 9-11 and out of that I literally physically on my knees begged my editor to send me to Afghanistan and um, and I got very lucky um, I got over a border at which 500 other journalists were stuck and I was first man in, really, to northern Afghanistan for about two weeks. I had the whole thing to myself. And a whole load of stuff happened, including the discovery of John Walker Lynch. Remember the American yeah. Taliban and the, the first... Um, uh, Mike Spann, the first uh, American to die in Afghanistan. Between uh, Montserrat and Afghanistan, that's only, what, four or five years? So yeah, exactly. How were you picking up the skills that would allow you to uh, be in Afghanistan? You know, oh, I didn't know what I was doing. Okay. I mean, you know, and I had no training. I didn't have a flak jacket, none of that. And And actually, subsequently, I later worked out that I got way too close, way, way too close. I mean, I was sitting with... American and British bomb spotters, as they called in airstrikes, a hundred yards away, you know, and we were sitting behind a wall that was taking fire for three days, you know. I mean, it was yeah, and there was there was an Afghan journalist, a, f a friend of mine, with a video camera who walked ten yards from where we were and, and got shot, you know. Yeah. I mean, it was. I, I later worked out that photographers need to be that close, but writers can stand on a hill about a mile away, <laughs> and actually. Although you get the kind of descriptive stuff when you're right in there, if you want to talk to people, you're almost better waiting for a day because, do you know what, in the middle of a war, they're, they're busy no. and they really <laughs> have time to answer your questions. And I mean, I, I, did get, I did get good sort of descriptive stuff, but um, yeah, no I, no, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know what I was doing. And, and uh, you know, the price I paid for that, as I say, was a, a decent dose of PTSD for a few years. What what was that like? I mean, um, how did it affect? Well, it sort of manifested it with me in in that I just wanted to get back into war. 
Um, and I had quite a lot. By then, I was living in Delhi, and um, actually, I mean, the, there was a team from time who took Afghanistan. I only got back there once or twice, but there was plenty of others. There was a civil war in Nepal. There was one in Sri Lanka. There was trouble in Bangladesh. There were various civil, regional civil wars and or sort of insurgencies in India. Um, and then Iraq happened, and I went there as well. So, yeah, I got a call from a um, one of my editors. Um, about sort of 2003 and four, and he just sort of said something like, yeah, just, just you know, thought I'd mention that you realise that someone's died in the first line of your every story you filed for the last eight <laughs> months. <laughs> and, and to be honest, my response was, uh, of course, you know, that's, isn't that why we know it's important, you know? And um, it took me a long time to work out that, you know, the importance of a story isn't established only by death, you know, and and a lot of combat people get into that kind of circular thing that this must be covered because, you know, people are dying and therefore it's important. Well, yes, to a degree, but other stuff's important too, you know. Hey, it's Max. I'm going to put these guys on hold for a second and uh, tell you a little bit about some other guys. We're making this show possible. First up is Alarm Grid, and Alarm Grid is a DIY security company focused on customer experience. Now, DIY security company, that does not mean that it is do-it-yourself security. You do not actually need to protect your own home. That's what they do. The DIY part is uh, that you can set up the alarm yourself. They send it to you in a box. It's super easy to set up, and most alarm companies charge you through the nose to set that thing up, and then they charge you an activation fee, and then they charge you like 16 other fees that I don't even know the name of because they're so obscure and they don't make any sense. Alarm Grid doesn't have any of those gimmicks, any of those hidden charges. It works with any service you want, and there's no stunts. It's just an alarm system. If you need to protect something, like, say, your family, go to alarmgrid.com longform. Check out their services. The first month is free for our listeners. And again, there's no activation fee and no monitoring fee. You are not going to find that anywhere else. Thanks, Alarm Grid. Also sponsoring the show this week is the latest novel from number one New York Times bestselling author Karen Marie Monig. Uh, the novel is called Feverborn. And just like last week, I'm just going to read the description that's sitting right here in front of me and not try and make anything up myself because this description is so much better than anything that would come out of my brain. Here we go. Mac, Barons, Ryodan, and Jada are back, and the stakes have never been higher or the chemistry hotter. Hurling us into a realm of labyrinthine intrigue and consummate seduction, Feverborn is a riveting tale of ancient evil, lust, betrayal, forgiveness, and the redemptive power of love. I love it. Uh, number one New York Times bestselling author Sylvia Day says no one does it better than Karen Marie Monning. Learn more about the book at feverbornbook.com. Thanks to them for sponsoring the show. And let's get back to Aaron with Alex Perry. You've been doing Africa for about a decade now. You've been right. reporting for Africa. Uh, yeah, I'm now back in the UK. Are you looking back at those stories you wrote in the first couple of years you were in Africa and going, holy shit, I had no idea like what the fuck I was talking about? Oh, like, yeah. Like, yeah. I, I understand how someone becomes a veteran Africa reporter. I don't understand how someone reports from somewhere year one when you really don't know what's happening. You're stumbling around for a few years. Um, you know, and the rotation that some places do when they pull you out after three years made no sense to me because because it wasn't until year four, 
I'd say, that I really began to get it. I mean, that partly was to do with, um, like, how big Africa is. And, you know, there's 49 countries in my patch. I mean, it's absurd. Yeah. You know? I mean, trying to become a Nigeria expert is right. in itself a difficult bar to set for yourself. Yeah, because it's 160 million people, all of whom, um, you know, despite all the all the problems that Nigeria has, one problem it doesn't have is... is uh, inarticulate, shy people. Every single Nigerian has a take and a loud, voluminous take on what the what's wrong with the country, and they're all different. There's 160 million different opinions. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's like it's like you know the chaos of Lagos is is being shouted into your ear. And on top of that, it's impossible to get um, uh, interviews with government ministers. Uh, you know, you can be told that you're going to get it and you, you can sit around for 10 days, two weeks, and it just doesn't happen. Um, the the security is is ever-changing. Well, I think, I think about it uh, with regards to your work because one of the larger themes that you've been writing about is the failures of humanitarian aid. Yeah. And that's an issue that has that touches all of these uh, disparate areas of society. It has to do with government, it has to do with corruption, mm. it has to do mm. with um, uh, refugee crises. It, it hits almost all of the uh, checkboxes and, and, and interplays with all of them. So I would think that you know, if you're going to make a bold statement like humanitarian aid has failed Africa, you really have to understand that from a lot of different viewpoints. Are you reading like uh, government report? Like, what's your research process when you're when you're building a case like that? It's. I mean, for me, that was. It was just my research was was just reporting again and again. But as you say, you know, aid is so much a part of the landscape in Africa that that you really never do a story where you don't come across it. And it's a, it's it was a slow realization for me because I mean aid workers are generally lovely people, well-intentioned people yeah, who are working say, for organizations called things like Save the Children. Can't have made you very socially popular in these areas, right? I but, mean, but this is I, pretty much your whole possible drinking uh, group are people whose <laughs> livelihood you're uh, knocking. You'd be surprised, actually. I mean, th one of the things that really surprised me was when I began sort of rethinking aid was how receptive aid workers were to that yeah. idea. It, you know the, the the failures of aid are a really live debate within inside the aid community. It's just they don't tend to have those debates in public because mm. in public, you know, the image is incredibly important to aid groups. They depend on it actually. You know, it's not aid groups aren't structured so there's a press office on the end sort of sending stuff down out as a sort of ancillary thing. The press office is the centre of an aid group because maintenance of image they are people who can fix these awful problems and so therefore you should send them money. That's the essence of the business. But is that cynicism on the part of the aid workers um, about the specific companies that they work with or is it in a larger sense about the very fundamental so, idea look, of aid? I mean, look, we're, we're lumping them all together and, and you know, it's important to say that some are better than others. You know, this is a giant industry. Right. It's $138 billion a year, 600,000 right. people and tens of thousands of aid agencies. You know, 
but Med Sans Sans Frontier is wonderful. Anyone who works for the UN yeah. um, is definitely invested with a certain amount of cynicism. <laughs> <laughs> There's an article, I, I believe, from Might Magazine right. that came out in, uh, I guess, the 90s, if it was Might Magazine, um, that was, uh, I think it was a former aid worker wrote it and was basically like, Africa would be better off if every, if all of the aid pulled out now, not we need to get rid of the bad players right, here, right. we're tied into corruption, right. but in a holistic sense, the outcome 20 years later would be better if we were to just sever hu- Look, I mean, th- There's something to be said for that, not least because um, the very people who are receiving the aid are increasingly refusing it. You know, what does that tell you? Is that true? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, Paul Kagame in Rwanda is vehemently anti-aid, you know, and his government, he accepts aid through gritted teeth because he kind of financially needs it, but he's halved his reliance on it in the years that he's been in power, and his burning ambition is to get off the dole. It's crushing for spirit and, you know, and, and the ability to control your own lives and your own destiny, and you you can't do that if someone else has is controlling the purse strings, basically. Aid follows a very traditional model which is not just giving but actually telling people what to do and how to live and that is crushing Um, and that that tells me what the you know the 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 book's about it's looking at the three groups of people who are pushing africa around which is aid workers the few remaining dictators and and the new crop of jihadis and of course aid workers hate being put in that basket you know because after all, they spend a lot of time mopping up after wait, dictators wait, wait. and you're, jihadis. You're saying that they hate being grouped with <laughs> jihadis and dictators? Uh, yeah, but, but <laughs> I mean, there there's more parallels than that. Um, and, and a lot of this appears in your work that um, in the same way that when we look at the roots of al-Qaeda and ISIS, I mean, right. more al-Qaeda than ISIS, I guess, the stated goal was get the get the West out. Yeah. Like, we don't want Western intervention. And this, and this like, in Africa, you know, the face of Western inter- uh, intervention in, in the Middle East has been uh, American troops. Right. The face of intervention in uh, Sub-Saharan Africa is, is aid. USAID. Is aid, yeah. All right, not just USAID. Yeah, and, and so, you know, I mean, back to your earlier question of, of like, you know, how did I gather all this evidence and how did I come to this sort of conclusion? Well, I, I was sort of beginning to sort of question aid more and more and more the more of these brand new $75,000 land cruisers that I was seeing and I mean there are tens of thousands of those things you know every time anyone gets a new job they get a new car what is that about everyone else just gets a cab you know and the and the villas and the parties and the you know it's it, it's a, it's a pretty good lifestyle some of that you know those jobs and but then I went to Somalia in 2011 which was a, a famine and it was strange because everybody knew this family had been coming for a year and um, all the aid workers had stockpiled loads of aid all across East Africa and they were handing it out so nobody starved in Ethiopia or Kenya or Uganda or Djibouti. But there was a famine in southern Somalia and when I was on the ground there, um, really through not much investigation at all, I mean the, the people I spoke to were pretty candid and they were the Somali Prime Minister the Minister of Defence, the Minister in the Presidential Affairs, an aid worker and, uh, and a military advisor to the Somali government all said this famine is our deliberate strategy. We, you know, with the US government have decided to try and kill Al-Shabaab by starving it out and the US had made an argument that Shabaab had stolen 
food aid, and so therefore food aid could be described as a form of support to a prescribed terrorist group, which is a serious offence. And it had lent on all the aid agencies and said, you know, uh, we don't want you sending any food aid in southern Somalia. The aid agencies had objected, and uh, the US sort of reminded them it was their biggest donor, and from what I was told, that was that. And a quarter of a million people died. You know, so you have this situation, which is the absolute opposite of what we're being told. This isn't about African helplessness and Western generosity. This is Western ruthlessness and African annihilation. Withholding food in a famine is a war crime. And a quarter of a million people died. That makes it one of the worst in history. And then I was angry about it. You know, I mean, I'd, I'd seen some pretty nasty situations by then, but the, the dying in Mogadishu then was just horrendous. It was me and a photographer, Dominic Nah, that had a children's ward in, in, in one of the hospitals, and it was small, you know, and he had seven or eight beds in it. And we couldn't really understand because, I mean, thousands of people were dying every day. And we went at the first, you know, I think the first or second time we went in there, the kids just all died all around us in about 20 minutes. They all went, and we realized they didn't need a big room because they were, you know, the traffic was was fast, you know. If generosity and uh, ruthlessness are flip sides of the uh, coin of uh, American aid, and, and in some ways I think are, are reflective of a certain idea of national character and, and you know, uh, I, two two things I could say about Americans are that we you know we're the kind of people who think we we should save uh, Africa, and we're also the kind of people who are like uh, totally comfortable with like starving a civilian population to go after <laughs> terrorism. Uh, another th- uh, strand of your book is the rise of China mm. uh, within Africa, and if if the Chinese are indeed um, taking our place uh, on the African continent. Like where do you where do you foresee that transition leading in terms of all of this? Well, aid? I mean, look. First of all, they're not, you know, um, and uh, that's a that's a myth. You know, <laughs> that, that, I mean, rather w- with a straight face, the very people who were the imperialists with in Africa claim that China is acting like an imperial power. <laughs> but the truth is that the biggest investor in Africa is France, then the US, then the UK, then Malaysia, then South Africa, then China. China's yeah. not even the biggest Asian investor in Africa. It's a China scare story, but there's no doubt that China's trade has exploded with Africa. I mean, it is now over $100 billion a year. And, and they do do these, these spectacular infrastructure projects in really unlikely places. Nine billion in Congo, you know, who's going to do that? Um, and, yeah, they take a very different attitude, and it's kind of interesting. Number one is they don't go in and tell people what to do. They ask people what they want and then say that they will help them do it. You know, it sounds so simple, but it's... I mean, that's a, that's a kind of revolutionary approach in Africa, and it, it, that makes them quite welcome. They also... They don't run on, you know, quarterly time. You know, they don't have to report every quarter. I, I met the ambassador for... The Chinese ambassador in Congo and asked him about that nine billion deal and sort of said, you know, a lot of people think that's a bit risky. <laughs> and he, you know, and he looked at me and he said, oh, it's a nightmare. You know, it's taken me six months to get my JCBs out of customs and la 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 la. And it was, it was a, it was a mines for infrastructure deal. They were going to build all these railways and roads and hospitals and, and universities and stuff like that in return for um, mineral rights. 
gold, actually. And and he said, but you know what? In 50 years, you know, we will still be here and so will all that gold. So they were taking just, you know, that ability to see things on a much longer timescale beyond, say, the life of the average shareholder. <laughs> <laughs> um, it just allowed them to absorb a lot more risk, really. I like that uh, the Chinese are... Um refreshingly uh, unauthoritarian about their uh, <laughs> yeah. well, look, they have run into problems too I mean look, you know it's a sweeping generalization but there's no doubt there's been a number of incidents of out and out racism by Chinese in Africa and, and they've, they've come a bit of a cropper I mean there's been a series of sort of riots against Chinese managers uh, you know by African workers who were horribly underpaid and in mines that collapse and so on so yeah they've, they've run into problems but uh, but on a on a state level, they're generally quite welcome. The story of your time in Afghanistan uh, sounds like it ended with PTSD, and <laughs> then when, uh, we were just sort of going through Africa, and we got to what kind of self-diagnosed PTSD, Mog- you know? Mogadishu, um, which also does not sound like it was uh, particularly good on the psyche. Oh, I love Mogadishu. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> am I right in thinking that you're kind of uh, like a ping-ponging between um, wanting to and not wanting to be in horrific situations? I don't, I don't seek it out anymore, and I used to. To me, that was sort of validation. I I'm 45 now. I would not ask your age on the show, <laughs> although now we know. I was going to say, how old are your kids? <laughs> oh, my kids. Uh, they're 12 and 9 and 5, three girls. Okay. Yeah. Um, so 12, 12 years of uh, being someone's father in a dangerous situation was that like a, a line in the sand you know you? I, d- I don't know whether i'm horribly irresponsible but it didn't really ever cross my mind to stop but because and i'll tell you why because yeah. i thought i understood the risks a lot better and in particular i thought i understood that the risks were a lot less than were commonly perceived yet in afghanistan i did have you know a very dangerous three days but to be honest, in all the other stuff that I've done since, I can name, you know, there's maybe two times that someone's taken a shot at me. And then I don't think they were aiming at me, I think, you know, and it was pretty wild sort of stuff and it wasn't wasn't a sustained sort of thing. So I, th- I think, you know, and after a while I got, you got used to this sort of stuff. I mean, it's not, it's not risk avoidance, but it is risk mitigation, you know, and you, you take steps, you plan ahead pretty carefully, you go with the right people. You know, southern Somalia would probably be the dangerous, most dangerous place I went. Um, it was completely lawless, and there was an al-Qaeda group running around. So we took 20 armed guards, me and a photographer, which are available in Somalia for $10 a day, gun included. Mm. And, um, you know, and the idea was just to move extremely fast, get what we wanted, which was to go and see the site of an American uh, bombing, and get out. And... Um, and and just look like too much trouble for anybody you want to to mess with, really. Before going back to to uh, to England, where where were you based out of? So I was based out of Cape Town, um, which was uh, you know geographically a bit silly. Because, I was going to uh, say, uh, yeah. um, isn't uh, like London closer to Nigeria? <laughs> yeah, than Cape Town? yeah, no, it is. Um, yeah, it is. But um, Cape Town is lovely. Yeah, there's not many cities with a mountain in the middle of them, you know, yeah. something else. So you were there during your whole Africa stint? Yeah, and, and, you know, people always used to ask me about that contrast, you know, how can you go out to Somalia for two weeks and then come back to the life of, like, you know, vineyards and beaches and hiking? And I love the contrast. I mean, the variety actually is, is great. You know, I think doing nothing but combat or or nothing but sort of, 
you know, very nice sort of Mediterranean <laughs> African living is, um, well, even one of those can get a bit dull after a while, you know. Yeah. And I, the chop and change, I think, is completely invigorating, actually. And since we have ascertained that uh, northern Africa is actually closer to Europe, what was the strategic reason for living in Cape Town in the first place? Uh, it, it wasn't strategic. Oh. It was it was family. We'd done Delhi for five years, and we'd had a particularly bad last year where my wife got dengue fever, my eldest daughter got dengue fever, and I had a motorbike crash, and they fixed my leg so it stuck out the side, and I had to have it rebroken twice. <laughs> and when the call came from my boss at time, as to going to South Africa I, I knew it was him and I gave the phone to my wife and she said can we go to Cape Town please <laughs> <laughs> and he said yes of course you can is um, raising your children at far-flung world locations a um, career choice or is it um, something that you intentionally thought this this would be a cool way to grow up a bit of both I mean I think I wanted to keep doing what I was doing but I'm mean, sometimes I wonder whether I was dragging them around the world but actually since we've moved back to the UK they're complaining, yeah. you know? I was rereading uh, your your work on uh, Boko Haram, yeah. um, which is only, is less than two years old and mm. feels like, I mean, it feels like uh, when Boko Haram, like Boko Haram can't get, a, can't get in the news anymore, they can't get a break anymore, uh, right. which there's certainly a narrative uh, of rise and fall in all these stories, but there seems to be a competing narrative of... Uh, the global competition for attention among oh, jihadi groups yeah. um, that they are in competition with each other. Clearly, Al Qaeda feels well, very threatened was... by. Uh, so, I'm interested in what, having been, uh, I would say, one of the um, the prominent documenters of Boko Haram, who were a real uh, hot band at one point. Like, how do you see that stuff? I think that poses a, a really big question to to journalism because the attention that Boko Haram got was precisely what why they were doing what they were doing yeah you know for years me and other correspondents have been going out there and writing that story and you know they've been lost at the back of the magazine and we were saying this is important this is important this is important but then on the other hand when they did get all that attention as I say that was the aim of what they were doing and it encouraged them when the spotlight was on them to go ape shit. They yeah. went everywhere, all over northern Nigeria, massacring here, there, and whatever, just trying to retain that spotlight. And, you know, it's the same thing in Paris, right? Yeah. What did these kids really want? What was their main motivation? Attention. Yeah. Attention. And we gave it to them in waves. Not only that, the attention that we gave them went all around the world and terrorized the entire planet. You know, we did their job for them. You know, and these questions, I don't, you know, it doesn't seem to get asked. You know, and the truth is, of course, that, you know, being being affected by a terrorist attack, there's such a small chance of that. You know, you should you should be way more scared of cars. Yeah. You know, uh, motorbikes, I guess. Right. Your, your right. <laughs> I mean, it's true. It's true. No, I mean, to be honest, I mean, even if you go in, in my profession, if you kind of in, in some senses go seeking it out, I know way more correspondents that have been in, in traffic accidents in war zones than by bullets. Yeah. But this question doesn't seem to, 
you know, when are we going to get over the idea that, I mean, even, even with plane accidents, yes, we have planes. They're not that scary. They've been around for 100 years. Can we get over the idea? No, I mean, look, the te- uh, plane technology is like the, the safest technology we've, we've ever built. It's, uh, it's, a, it's unbelievable but how safe. every time there's a plane crash, it's a massive story. Why? Why? Well, well so that brings up, so my, my follow-up question is, you are in northern Nigeria. You're yeah. in Mataguri, which is um, some of you know some of the worst violence in northern Nigeria happened yeah. around there. And you know, a bunch of guys are going around, running over a school, slitting the boys' throats, mm-hmm. kidnapping the girls because they want Western media attention. Yes, you are the designated representation of the Western media. Where where yes. does that leave you? Like knowing. Pretty, All of those factors now. <laughs> what do you do about it? Pretty conflicted. That's yeah. where it leaves me. I mean, look, on the, on the one hand, these guys are important because, you know, at, at, at some points when they're in their ascendancy, they look like they're going to split Africa's biggest country in two. Yeah. And that will be, you know, a disaster of, of you know, almost unimaginable proportions. They also speak to a lot of the problems in Nigeria, as in, you know, disaffection with a government that has systematically ripped off its people to, you know, world record degree for 50 years. Yeah. But, yeah, there's a problem because they want us there and they carry out these massacres to get our attention and should we therefore be giving it to them? And if we do give it to them, does it just encourage them to do more? Yeah, I think it does. You know, I don't... I haven't sort of figured this out yet, but I think at least... You know, smarter people than I or my bosses should be discussing this stuff and not just, you know, I don't know, chasing the the foreign horror story or, you know, I mean, and is there a way in which even to to put that into the story? I did put it into my Boko Haram yeah, story. Absolutely. You know, I, I there's a discussion that needs to be had here about... You know, Twitter hashtag campaigns and awareness. Well, you know, if the terrorist group in question, you know, is specifically seeking, you know, your awareness of it, (laughs) you know, maybe think twice about that. You know, that that's how I dealt with it. But but I wouldn't claim that that's a great answer. So clearly, it's not something that one person can take a personal stand on. You know, if you if you go, hey, I'm not covering uh, I'm not covering jihadis anymore. That's what they want. You know, it's kind of like, well, I, I your kids can eat whatever they want. We're going to hire someone else to replace you for this job. Yeah. Um, at the same time, I had um, uh, Rukmini Kalamaki on the show, Ma- sure, Kalamaki, yeah, yeah. Um, who covers um, ISIS for the New York Times. And yeah, she's great. Yeah, I knew her from Mali. We were discussing the issue of ransom paying, which has um, some weird, wacky world echoes of media reporting, where uh, countries like the U.S. say, we're, we're not paying ransoms, period. Right. Well, we'll let you behead someone. Yes. We're doing a policy. And eventually... That's actually, you know, you hear uh, chatter um, now where, hey, we don't, we're not kidnapping Americans anymore. It's not, you know, I, I'm not claiming that it works or it doesn't work, but it's a strategy that had to be executed at the very top and uh, people had to play along. The State Department basically had to say no mm. more ransoms. Um, mm. So the only way I could imagine that the media coverage of terrorism could change is something from the top like that. But we have... We have a lot of reasons not to do that also. Namely, terror is important. I mean, what's happening in northern Nigeria is important. Right. 
in the course of your time covering uh, these jihad groups, has, has your view on that evolved? Like seeing it go on for years and I years, it, it felt so new two or three I th- years I ago. I think it's definitely evolved. Yeah, what's what's quite new for me, um, and I'm not the only reporter that's done this, but is is looking into the the uh, Europeans or Americans that have gone out for these groups, and 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 in some senses because you know they. I mean, I've studied a group from Portsmouth, which is a town an hour's drive from where I live um, and so in some senses I you know because I'm from the area I, I knew that environment I knew I could I could intuit a lot of the motivations also they posted endlessly on Facebook so they wrote you know you could you could gather all this stuff and what emerged from that was that these guys they were kids you know that that the, the idea that we had of this these terrifying terrorists these were teenage idiots you know who were had big fantasies warrior hero call of duty in real life kind of fantasies and wanted to run off to a faraway land and and you know presumably marry a beautiful princess and god knows what and that that the problem was they were immature and when they got there they were hopeless as Militants. These guys had never held a gun before, and generally they got uh, guard duty or worse, cleaning the toilets. You know, and they they didn't they didn't take part in any battles for months. And, and then it's and then it's seen. Well, I followed all these. I mean, and know, most of them got shot within the first a 50% five minutes. Attrition rate. Yeah. Right. I mean, immediately yeah, and, on the first time. And it seems like they are used for cannon fodder for a diversion. You know the. The generals and the actual fighters want to do an attack over here. How do we ensure the success of that? We'll send those lunatic, lunatic, you know, useless Brits in, you know, who'll get cut up in seconds. And that's what happens. I mean, that's a long answer to your question, but but these are the least scary terrorists of all time, you know. And unless we understand that, then I don't, you know, unless we understand the sort of the roots of of what you're dealing with here, you know, I mean, these guys were were self-radicalized, but with others who were sort of recruited, you're essentially dealing with child abuse, actually. There's, there's a lot of similarities. I met a, a recruiter who who very candidly said he targeted confused people, you know, people confused about their sexuality or maybe they had a drink or drugs problem or they had a broken home or whatever. He said, yeah, no, I'll go for those guys. You get really good results. You know? Which is not like a, uh, like a brand new playbook. I mean, cults have been recruiting for right. troubled people for thousands of years in the case of the the story i think the story you're talking about uh i think his name was if if thekar if thekar yeah you wrote a profile of him as part of this newsweek uh single series and uh after i read that i noticed that he had been pro- he was he's like uh the poster boy mm. for british yeah like other people wrote about him also which i'm sure uh, I don't know who was first. I, yours well, was, he was the first. A good, was, he was a good-looking boy. He was know? a good-looking boy, and but he was also a, a poster boy within the uh, the the sort of ISIS sympathizer uh, communities. Oh, very definitely. And had this Instagram presence. But it was but it was all fake, you know. Right. There was there was me with my big gun, me me looking cool in the desert, me on the back of a truck, you know. But he he was holding the big gun, but he never got to shoot it. You right. know, he, it was it was all. It was a classic Instagram account, actually. Nothing was real. <laughs> yeah. I mean, is it is it strange for you? It feels like we're witnessing the emergence of um, terrorist movements with their own true, like, media 
uh, for the first time. Is it strange for you, like you're writing about this guy and then there's like a, you know, Dobbick magazine is also profiling. I know the guy who is currently wanted for the Paris attacks right. has like a like a like a like kind of a feature Saturday profile about him where he's like, I, sn- I snuck back into Europe. Yeah, like, well, there's, there's one for Shabab in Somalia as well. There's a magazine. Yeah. yeah, do, you yeah. Re- do you read that stuff? Yeah, of course I do. Yeah. yeah, yeah. What's it like? It's uh, it's uh, it's. Um, pretty horrific. It's yeah. it's a, a little bit you know because there'll be there's a lot of aftermath reports. It's yeah. like we did this and yeah. they all bled and you know you're you're dealing with people who not don't seem to be thinking through the consequences of what they're doing or or I mean I just use it as research and that's unusual. I mean I, when I when I did the the British jihadis story, it's very hard to get people's trust on social media and stuff like that. I mean, you talked about it, you know, it's, it, you, you have to try for months and months and months and, you know, eventually you, hopefully you get lucky. But I realised actually that it was a lot easier than I thought because these guys have been writing about themselves almost every day, everywhere they went. You know, in some ways it was better than an interview, any interview I was going to get because they were really putting across all their deepest doubts and thoughts and and worries and 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 emotions and and you know it was incredibly rich material so that i mean that just it that was odd for me to realize that my god this stuff is there this is really easy yeah i just need to read read their facebook page do you ever get weirded out when you're when you're getting really deep into i was reading um there's a, a book came out uh a few years ago called hhhh that's a guy named a journalist named lawrence manet and He's uh, he's investigating. He's he's on eBay bidding um, for this rare Nazi memoir, and right. he's like talking to his girlfriend. It's he's talk. It's sort of a metafictional book. He's talking to his girlfriend. He's like, he's like, oh fuck, this guy's bidding it up. I can't believe I'm like in a bidding war with this Nazi. And she's like, you know that he's sitting on the other end thinking the same thing about you, and that there's this weird thing where you always think you're the person who's interested in Nazi memorabilia who's not right. sort of a you know a little too close to it. Do you do you ever have that feeling? What you're going to get infected by something? Yeah, or yeah. just like you know, um, just going to put down this um, you know uh, Al Qaeda literature and go have dinner with my daughter? Is there a that, is there a, a okay, dissonance to that I shift? Do, I can do that stuff, no problem. But I recently, I've been looking into um, all the pedophilia stuff in the UK, and that's really dark. Um, and yeah, being a father. This is the sort of like pedophile ring. So the yes, I mean, pick your British institution that it's hard, hasn't got a pedophile problem. It's hard yeah. for Americans to totally understand this because it's like, can you believe it? Even Jimmy Seville. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen this guy before, and now I've seen a picture of him, and he looks like a pedophile. The like, there's nothing surprising about this story in retrospect. It's true; a lot of them do look like. But uh, okay, I'll give you the the yeah. the, the summary uh, version. One, one minute, um, one minute uh, uh, explainer on the UK pedophilia. Scale. Okay, BBC Radio One, uh, the Houses of Parliament, um, almost any educational institute you care to mention, uh, a lot of state child protection. Uh, institutions, all of them, yeah, had a pedophile problem. But uh, the one that I was particularly looking into, and it's the worst one on all sorts of levels, is the one that surrounds the Houses of Parliament. And there, the accusations are also most severe. There, the accusations are that there was at least three murders of kids, and it really doesn't get 
to be a worse abuse of power than the most powerful people in the land using the institutions of state, as in state child protection, to procure 10, 11-year-old children, have sex with them, kill three of them, and then use the state apparatus to cover it up, which is essentially the allegation. And in that, um, mixed up in that, is a former Home Secretary who's kind of like the Attorney General, I guess. So the guy that was in charge of the entire justice system was... Uh, using that justice system, I watch a lot of uh, uh, like BBC mystery. Right. Okay. Uh, oh, do you? And so it's been a long-standing gripe <clears throat> of mine that uh, uh, they all end with it was like a, a pedophile ring with police and government in it and then the scandal broke and it kind of makes it seem like oh maybe that like maybe that is a british concern well okay it's not just british i i mean some of the other stuff that i've and even in other countries like there was that series top of the lake which i believe is a bbc production right. set in new zealand more, spoiler more alert good. it's also a pedophile group that murdered a kid <laughs> yeah well it i mean some of the Academic research that I came across on this is horrendous. Turns out that uh, one in a hundred people has pedophilic desires. Sure, most people suppress them. I don't know they, why. I want to, sure, really quickly. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> it snapped. This. Um, and most people suppress them, but um, uh, those that don't can be very, very active. And so that tends to translate to uh, between one in five and one in four children and this is anywhere in the world it's not just the uk yeah have been abused but more in the uk <laughs> <laughs> it actually turns out to be more southern europe i don't know, I don't yeah. know why that is yeah. but yes no that material is is incredibly dark and what was really dark was I, I i came across this um sort of social charity that was dealing both with the abused and the abusers and it had got a lot of them to go on tape video and explain why they did what they did and the guy let me watch a load of these tapes and the, I mean, a, cu- a couple of them were horror movie figures. I mean, just dark, furrowed brows. And you know, how many children do you think you'd abused? And this guy said, "Oh, about seven hundred. You know, it, it was chilly. But possibly even more disturbing were were the ones that were perfectly normal, absolutely normal, reasonable, charming people. You asked me earlier, about you know, how do you tell a credible source or how you, when you get a measure of somebody? Yeah, the kind of guy that, oh, this guy's will, will be quite articulate and I could see myself <laughs> going to lunch with him or something yeah. like that. And it really confuses you. Couple that with the statistics, it really confuses you. You begin to think, God, maybe this is latent in absolutely everybody. You know, maybe anybody could be a paedophile. And then, yeah, that can lead you down all sorts of dark paths, particularly if you're a father. And yeah, did Ooh. you did you um, get assigned that, or did you take take that topic on? Uh, uh, no, that was yeah, Richard Annis's idea at, at Newsweek. Yeah, hmm. I mean that that was that story been building. You're right for a number of years, but when it got to the Westminster murders, you know, we, we were like, let's let's get into this. Yeah. Post um, UK Newsweek um, mm. being uh, ruined by your reporting. <laughs> what, uh, what, what, what are you, what are you doing with yourself? What's, well, um, what's it look a, like for you? Okay. So I'm, I'm doing the freelance thing and, yeah. um, and desperately trying to make it work. But uh, I mean, coupling that with, you know, probably more books um, where I am finding appetite for my stuff. Um, what's, what is, 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 is Sorry, go ahead. Is, uh, is TV actually. Yeah series like um there seems to be this ravenous appetite for non-fiction kind of um narratives really so i've got a couple of things 
going around various London production companies. How does your work uh, become a TV series? Well, so, so I did a story on, um, uh, well, I've done a couple of stories on uh, cocaine smuggling across West Africa. Yeah. And I've turned that into a sort of 2,000 word, I don't know, scenario setter or something like that. It's not in any way a screenplay or you know, mm. mapped out as a series. There aren't any characters in it, but that seems to be enough to sort of start a conversation. And, and then, then, and then, and then it's 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 sort of my job, I think, to be a kind of almost a sort of uh, reporter, researcher, feeding into um, writing that other people who know TV will do. So it will be but like, the, a, to be honest, I'm feeling my way. I'm, I'm not quite sure. Like sort of like a fictional series in a nonfiction milieu, in a way. Exactly. Like, okay. You gotcha. Know, some of these events have happened. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> sort of HBO kind of uh, yeah, exactly. production. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. How like is it fun shifting to freelancing in a, a, a country that doesn't have a tremendous amount of outlets for <laughs> what you do? I'm pretty resigned to the idea that you know it's 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 going to be pretty tough to sort of make it work, and there's going to be some. Hard times, and, I, and I've had to think a lot about money. Actually, you know, yeah. you know, it's, my response is kind of the same when people say, "Well, you, you you can't go to conflict zones if you've got kids." Well, you know, maybe I'm just really irresponsible. For how much money? <laughs> <laughs> maybe, you know, maybe I'm just really irresponsible. You know, but with the money thing, I just don't think not having enough money is a good enough reason. I just it's not an interesting enough reason not to do something. You know, I mean, yeah. You know, I can think of all sorts of reasons not to do a story, you know, yeah. to put someone's life in danger or, or, or whatever, but, but just just because the money's crap, I don't know. Would you? Would it be easier if you were in Delhi or you know somewhere where the yeah. cost of living's lower? Yeah, it would be. It yeah. would be. Um, and you know, to be honest, we're we're in a lucky position than a lot of people. Were you know, I worked for twenty five years on salaries, so you know, we own our own house. And, uh, yeah, well, I mean, our costs are not that high. Well, you know, the kids want to go to Disneyland and that sort of stuff. And and additionally, I mean, is the sort of uncertainty of venue, you know, knowing that you're going to do 10 Newsweek ebooks that 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 puts your life on a very specific course. Yeah, and I, I love that. You know, yeah. I love, you know, and, that, and that, you know, part of the reason I was able to do 10, which is a lot, I mean, 100,000 words a year is a book, you know, yeah. but um, it's because it was... You know, the, the, the pitching process with Richard Addis was, you know, the Nepal earthquake happened and I, I phoned him and I said, there's been an earthquake in Nepal. And he went, yeah, go. That was it. Yeah. You know, and I went. And, you know, you can spend months pitching stories. And, and, and you know, of course, <laughs> the other reason that, you know, slightly less honorable reason that I was able to do that was because the editing process was, well, I mean, it was a lot quicker in that way. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Alex Perry. Um, the book is The Rift. It is available now. It um, is. Uh, we'll be back next week. And that was the Long Form Podcast. Thanks very much to Alex Perry for coming in on his trip to New York. Uh, thank you to our editor, Jenna Weiss-Berman, my co-hosts, Evan Ratliff and Max Linsky, our intern, Courtney Harrell, our wonder sponsor, MailChimp. We'll be back next week.